Good morning, everyone. Isn't it a gorgeous Sabbath day and just a beautiful time of year? I've got to say it, this is my favorite time of the year. And you know, I don't know of a more beautiful place than this. The grass, the trees, the leaves, just starting to turn. Happy Sabbath, folks. Soak it up and enjoy it. Our sermon this morning is about Mark chapter 2 and verses 23 and on through chapter 3 to verse 6. But permit me just a few comments about the Gospel of Mark, just to put this passage into context. We know that the author, of course, was John Mark. The Adventist Bible Dictionary says that this same Mark was the owner of the upper room where Jesus celebrated that Last Supper with his disciples. This author, Mark, was once regarded as a failure. We know that this Mark abandoned Paul and his uncle Barnabas during a missionary journey. Paul remembered that, and so did Barnabas. And we remember how Barnabas reached out to Mark, mentored and discipled him, and restored him. And this restored Mark invented a new genre of literature, the gospel account of Jesus' life. We know that Mark's gospel was most likely, probably, the first of the gospels to be written. Matthew and Luke used his work as a basis, and so we know and we refer to these gospels now as the synoptic gospels. Two Greek words, optics, which means seeing, sin together, putting them together, seeing together. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It can be comfortably read in one sitting. In the first sermon in this series, Dr. Eckhart Muller explained to us immediacy in the book of Mark. Everything happens immediately, quickly. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, Jesus' words in red. If you read Mark's gospel, all of Jesus' words can be comfortably read in 20 minutes. And so for Mark, all a person needs to discover Jesus and to change life for eternity is listening to Jesus for 20 minutes and their life is never the same again. Yes, Mark tells his story quickly. In the first few chapters, chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 10, it covers 33 years or thereabouts of Jesus' life. And then chapters 11 to 16 covers the last week of Jesus' life. And then from the early parts of chapter 14 through to the, towards the end of chapter 15, the best part of two chapters... It focuses on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So Mark's gospel, it moves quickly, but then he slows and almost stops at the most important point in Jesus' life. Mark is eager to get his point across. So eager that he puts the essential point of his book in verse 1. 
Turn with me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. It simply says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's point, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the good news. It's the summary of the whole book. This gospel is about the Son of God. Its purpose is to emphasize the identity, the authority, and the credibility of Jesus. And in a sense, Mark plays somewhat of a game with his reading audience. Now, who's heard of that game, Where's Waldo? You know that? Have you played that with your kids, your grandkids? In the rest of the English-speaking world, it's Where's Wally? I like the American version, Where's Waldo? And you know, the, the game is to find Waldo with the red and striped hooped sweater and the red and white striped beanie in the, in the picture. Mark's game is, who will be the first to identify Jesus as the Son of God? Well, the Father in heaven identifies Jesus the Son of God twice. In Mark 1 verse 11, at his baptism, Jesus is called the Son of God. At the transfiguration in chapter 9 and verse 7, God in heaven similarly calls Jesus that. Demonic spirits identify Jesus as the Son of God in Mark chapter 3 and verse 11 and in Mark chapter 5 verse 7. But who will be the first human that identifies Jesus as the Son of God? Which disciple will it be? Will it be a woman? Will it be a Pharisee? Will it be a political ruler? Will it be a child? Mark finally delivers that message to us. Turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 verse 37. And as the story of Mark slows to the most important point in his book, we read these words. Mark 15 verse 37. It says... With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Notice the, the shortness of the phrases here for impact. This is where Mark wants us to stop and pause and consider what this is all about. And then verse 37 says, I'm sorry, verse 38 says, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In verse 39, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. This is the focal point of God's, of Mark's message about Jesus. Mark wants his reading audience to come and stand with this centurion, the centurion of all people. Roman soldiers were like human Rottweilers that were killing machines. And a centurion were to keep these savage men in order and in control. This man was no effeminate pansy. And he is the one that identifies Jesus as 
the Son of God. And Mark invites us to come and stand by that centurion, to see what happened, to listen, and to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. But to bring us to this point of understanding, a point of realization, a point of conversion, Mark believes that we need to make a journey with him. Everything is important in Mark's gospel. When this book is so concise, every word, every phrase is significant. There are important details that happen in Mark chapters 2 and 3 that help us to arrive at that realization of the identity of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Bill Knott, last Sabbath, explored the amazing calling of Levi as a tax collector, a man whose profession was to take and Jesus invited Levi instead to be a giver, to give himself and follow Jesus. And Levi did this. This Jesus, the Son of Man, has power to transform lives. And in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through to verse 12, he shows how Jesus has the power not only to transform a paralytic into health, but to forgive sins as well. However, in this journey of understanding, the identity of Jesus, and in understanding that, not everything is sweetness and light. There's some struggles along the way. In Mark chapter 2, we're introduced to the Pharisees. Today, as soon as we hear that very name, Pharisees, what happens to us? Isn't there a, a descending gloom almost? That's today. But when Mark, before he was even recording this, at the time of what Mark's describing here, Pharisees were regarded completely differently. No other group in this era is mentioned more than the Pharisees. They were highly regarded, loved and appreciated. Josephus says that there were 6,000 Pharisees in all Israel in this time. Their characteristics, they were exact and precise and they were admired for this in the same way that we admire the precision of Swiss watches. Their striving for righteousness and piety, their influence and support for the people, it was all highly regarded, respected and admired. When Paul was looking for credibility, he identified himself as a Pharisee. In an era that was devoid of superheroes and sports stars, they were the loved heroes of the time. Their lives revolved around purity, they were moral, reliable, faithful. They were wholesome good people who could be trusted. They practiced financial integrity. When it came to tithing, they tithed on their kitchen herbs. Nine little leaves for the stew and one leaf 
the tithing. They fasted twice a week, investing two days dedicated to prayer and fasting. Even atheists like being prayed for, and the people appreciated the Pharisees praying for them. When it came to Sabbath observing, an hour before the sun set, they were welcoming in the Sabbath with joyous songs. They enjoyed the Sabbath and lingered an hour after the sunset, farewelling the Sabbath. They pro practiced proper ethical religious behavior. They were never an embarrassment. Dressed right. There was no such thing as a uh, <clears throat> wardrobe malfunction for a Pharisee, if you know what I mean. They were educated and willing to share their knowledge. And this sharing of knowledge and information was a rare thing in this era. People tended to, to keep it all to themselves, to possess the power that came with education and learning. But the Pharisees shared it. They were evangelists. They would cross over land and sea, usually at their own expense, to save just one person. They were particularly admired for calling out the priests, the clergy. They kept the recipients of tithes and sacrifices honest. And when we read the Gospels, no one ever challenged the Pharisees. No one ever says to them, who do you think you are? No one says to them, who gave you the right to say that? They had authority, position, and most importantly, admiration and it was never challenged by the people or the rulers of the day so with that background it's time to visit that grain field in mark chapter 2 mark chapter 2 verse 23 and it says one sabbath jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along and as his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? We as Seventh-day Adventists, we know this story well, this dispute over Sabbath observance. But Mark's account doesn't include one vital element that's found in Matthew's account. What is that vital detail, folks? What's missing here? What isn't in the text that's in the Mark text? Hunger. Mark doesn't tell us that his disciples were hungry. Hunger. Desire of Ages gives us a really important insight into what had happened. She writes in page 284, One Sabbath, as the Saviour and his disciples returned from the place of worship, they passed through a grain field of ripening grain. And catch this. Jesus had continued his work to a late hour. Are you catching this? Who grew up in an Adventist home? Who had parents that were always the last to leave church on Sabbath. Yeah. 
There is a hunger that happens on Sabbath like no other day of the week. When you're waiting in the car park for mum and dad to finish and it's all going on. You know what I'm talking about? Here are these disciples. Ellen White says, Jesus had continued his work to a late hour. There was a pincer movement, movement coming together on the disciples at this time. They were going through this grain field. And in this era, there were negative attitudes towards fasting on Sabbath. You didn't fast on Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't fast on Sabbath. Sabbath was a day when you ate. So the double pincer movement was, if they didn't eat, they would be condemned. If they did eat in this grain field, they would similarly be condemned. Jesus' disciples fasted on no day. The passage just before this explains how can you fast when it's a time of celebration? And these guys, with stomachs burning and churning and biting, are walking through a grain field where the grain is ripe. Seriously, have you ever tried to eat grain in a grain field? I did it once for research purposes. <laughs> you know what it's like. You're enjoying some good popcorn. The popcorn's blown and puffy and gentle on the mouth. But then you come to one of those grains that for some reason hasn't popped. Well, what's that like on the teeth? These men are walking through this grain field. They're strolling there. They're not walking through a vineyard where the grapes are ripe and plump and sweet. They're not walking through a grove of fig trees or an orchard of peaches where you could really put some away, if you know what I'm talking about. Grain is really designed to be crushed, pulverized, ground, and then cooked. Can you smell fresh bread, folks? They weren't going to eat much of this stuff. Just a little to take the edge away. The Levitical Code also placed a ban on using tools to pick food from another person's field. The understanding was, so long as you kept moving, you could use your hands to pick a little grain. You couldn't take any food beyond the boundary of the, of the field. And certainly, picnic rugs were out of the question. You had to keep moving. And now the attack of the Pharisees. This attack was ultimately directed at Jesus. But to do this, the Pharisees actually take aim at people who were vulnerable, the hungry disciples. And Jesus protects his disciples better than a bear protects her cubs. We know if you really want to attract the attention 
of parents. Make a criticism or two of their kids, isn't that right? Mm -hmm. And these people got the attention of Jesus very quickly. When the disciples gave themselves to Jesus, look how he protects them. Look how he defends and cares for them. Jesus wasn't going to deprive his followers while he was with them. Like the shepherd of Psalm 23, going through green pastures. He wasn't going to, take, to say to his disciples, in a field that was abundant with food, no eating. Most of us do well in this land of plenty. Each Sabbath, I don't know about you, but each Sabbath, Jesus takes me through bountiful grain fields. Following the advice of one of our members, Dr. Al Reese, I can remember him telling me, Anthony, we need to weigh ourselves on the bathroom scales every morning. But there's one morning I dread standing on the scales. It's Sunday morning. Why is it Sunday morning? Because Jesus has taken me through bountiful grain fields on Sabbath. Hmm. How does Jesus defend his disciples? In Mark chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, in a sense, Jesus asked the, the Pharisees to look into their sacred history, examine the compassion of David when he and his charges were hungry, for the Pharisees to look into their Bibles and notice how one of their heroes responded to the hunger of his friends and companions. Adventist author Walter Specht writes, and I quote, the point here seems to be that David was anointed of the Lord with all that this implied. If it was right for the anointed David and his hungry companions to eat the holy bread belonging to the priests, how much more could the hungry disciples of Jesus violate the scribal rules about the sacred Sabbath. This same author, Walter Specht, had also made the important point. The question was not, should the Sabbath be kept? Rather, it was, how should the Sabbath be kept? And we discover that Jesus is the authority on all things pertaining to the Sabbath. He made it he knows it. He knows what it's about. And Mark has made great emphasis on the authority and the power of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we read that this Jesus has authority as a teacher. 1, verse 27, he has authority over evil spirits. In chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, he can eat and associate with tax collectors and sinners without being tainted. In Mark chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, his presence turns fasting and mourning into feasting and celebration. And if David had the authority to reinterpret laws and practices, Jesus has even greater authority to show how the Sabbath should be observed. Ellen White, 
in Desire of Ages, page 284, has these important words to say. She says, In the days of Christ, the Sabbath had become so perverted that its observance reflected the character of selfish and arbitrary men rather than the character of the loving Heavenly Father. But in reality, this so-called Sabbath dispute in this grain field and the next Sabbath dispute in the synagogue had little to do with the Sabbath. Almost nothing to do with the Sabbath. When I was a young man, I had the opportunity to visit the fields of Flanders. The fields of Flanders were once grain fields, fertile, abundant paddocks. World War I turned them into the killing fields. There the world saw industrialized warfare. My grandfather had been on these fields at this time. His job was in reconnaissance, to crawl forward of the front trenches and to mark on maps where the opposition was, and then to crawl back to his own trenches. Of all the roles in World War I, this was the one with the shortest life expectancy. On one occasion, when the battle was so intense, when men stayed in their uniforms and didn't even take their boots off for 17 days, he was caught in the crossfire. This was a time when men used God-given resources like iron and steel to make things like bombs, bullets, bayonets and tanks. God-given resources that should have been used for plows, pruning hooks, harvesting shears and tractors. Resources, God-given resources that were misused. And in this battle, in this grain field in Mark 2, Jesus and his disciples are innocently walking through a grain field when they are ambushed and attacked. And attacked with a God-given resource that should have been a blessing, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a weapon of choice. The dispute is not about the Sabbath. The dispute was a collision of authority. The authority of Jesus and the authority of Pharisees. In Mark chapter 3, the venue of the battle moves from the grain field to the synagogue. And this time the vulnerable target, it's not the hungry disciples. This time it's a person with a withered hand. 
probably a person more vulnerable than someone with just temporary hunger pains. And the Greek hints that this man had had this disability since birth. A lifelong hunger for healing and health. A desire not to be special, but just to be what most people would consider normal. The text says, they. Obviously implying the Pharisees. They watched closely to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. They were stalking him looking for another opportunity to attack. Previously, Jesus had invited them to look into their sacred history, into their Bibles, and find the response of love and compassion. And their response was silence on that earlier occasion. This time, Jesus invites the Pharisees to look into the law and to distill the issue to the very basis. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And once again, their answer is silence. And that silence was an eloquent response describing the condition of their heart. Jesus heals the man. Nothing was going to stop him from doing good on the Sabbath and then Mark does something extraordinary. Read with me Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. It says, it describes Jesus how he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Mark, in a sense, invites us as readers to look into the hearts of those in the synagogue on that Sabbath. The Pharisees, stubbornness and if we're really honest that stubbornness is not a resoluteness of purity or a resilience of faithfulness instead it was darkness and standing there beside those dark hearts there is a heart of abundance a heart that's loaded with food overflowing with healing, looking for any excuse to do good on a Sabbath day or any day. None of this was about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a weapon of choice. It was about compassion for humanity and authority. And the text makes this perfectly clear. Let's notice the key emphasis here in Mark 2, verse 27 and 28. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for who? man not man for the sabbath so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath mark is moving us closer and closer to our understanding of jesus as the son of god but in doing this he needs to reveal not only the identity of jesus but the true identity of the pharisees and this is revealed unquestionably in chapter 3 and verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In the literal here, it uses the word and the phrase, and the Pharisees went out and immediately, 
as Dr. Muller has made the point, immediately comes back here. That was the immediate response to the healing of this man, that they go out not on, on if they should kill Jesus, but how they will kill Jesus. Robert Stein, a commentator, writes this. He says, on that very Sabbath, Jesus' opponents immediately go out and plan his death because of his doing good on the Sabbath. The irony, he writes. And Ellen White asked the perceptive question, was it better to slay upon the Sabbath as they were planning to do than to heal the afflicted as he had done? And the Pharisees made an alliance with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? Most likely, they were not a religious entity, but a political power made up of aristocratic families who favoured and look back with fondness on the rule of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who had his favorite of his ten wives killed. Herod the Great, who had two of his sons put to death. Herod the Great, who arranged for the butchering of the infant boys in Bethlehem. And the Pharisees are doing a deal with these Herodians. While Jesus is being revealed, so too are his critics in all their vileness. But they chose to mask it secretly. And Mark here announces by implication the motives and the accomplices who will cause the death of Jesus the Son of God. Emerging from this grain field, emerging from this synagogue, emerging from this ambush and this attack, the identity of Jesus is revealed. Love, kindness, compassion, generosity, an abundance for his people. This morning I'd like you to take out this connection card. As Pastor Chad has mentioned, fill in the front side and as we come to the second side, if you have an interest in beginning a relationship with this Jesus, if you'd like to be discipled and mentored through this, check that box. If you don't have a card, let one of our kind deacons know and they'll be happy to give you a card. If you'd like to be baptized into this Jesus, there's a place there for you to check as well. If you'd like to join Jesus' church, there's a place there as well. If you'd like to study the Bible about this Jesus, mark your card. And there's also a place here for a response. If the sermon was clear, it'd be nice to know. And this week, 
If you would like to explore the identity of Jesus, mark that. We'd like to pray for you. Emerging from this grain field and this synagogue is Jesus, the Son of God.